Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Mark Josephsberg, an Alexander Technique teacher in New York City in Manhattan. He's been a teacher for about 10 years, and we're going to talk today about strategies for change using the using Alexander Technique directions. And it, for this uh, for this podcast, Mark is actually going to interview me. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert, and welcome back to your show. Great, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, glad to have you here. And so, uh, ways of looking at directions. Yeah, in, yeah. In terms of strategies. In terms of strategies. What am I talking about? Well, um, just a, a a quick very quick statement about Alexander Directions, which I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with, but they're basically um, self-statements st- that one makes to oneself, mental intense, if you like, about, wh- about what you would like to happen. So you might say, uh, I'd, I'm letting my neck be free. That would be a very classic Alexander Technique Direction. There, there are ones around... Um, back lengthening and widening. There are negative directions, which are my favorite, like I'm not tensing my neck or I'm not compressing my body. Whatever whatever directions you are currently using, um, what I'm going to talk about really applies to, to any of them. And here's my, my starting point for this. I think... Um, most uh, people who've studied uh, human thinking, neuroscientists and the like, will say that most of us have somewhere in the neighborhood of seven plus or minus two thoughts that we can have going on in our brain at any one time. And some people have, you know, are better at this than others, but there's a limited number. And some of those uh, memory slots, if you like, uh, have to be taken up with things like, I don't want to walk into a tree, or if I'm driving a car, I want to have some awareness of, of other drivers. So there are not necessarily a lot of available spots or available um slots for adding new thoughts. And so if you're going to uh, use Alexander directions to change things about yourself, uh, it's first of all going to probably be a lot easier to start with just one or one at a time. Because otherwise you're in danger of, of overloading the system. So if you start with something like, I'm not tensing my neck, um, that's one slot, and there, there may well be room for that, or something else may have to drop out that's not that important. So given that you you have this limited number of interventions you can make, it's it's really important that the interventions you do are, first of all, useful ones, and secondly, have... Um, have a a widespread effect or are are kind of very important intervention points. And the head-neck relationship 
was, of course, what Alexander, I think, saw as the most crucial inter- place to intervene. He, he actually primary primary control. And I think it was a brilliant choice on his part because it it is that connecting corridor between your head and your uh, torso. It's a place that's big enough that a teacher can get their hands on it, if need be. And it's a very powerful place to intervene. So an intent like, I'm letting my neck be free, or I'm not tensing my neck, or I'm not squeezing my neck, or whatever direction you want to use. An intent like that if, uh, can have a huge impact on the rest of your body because it affects the way this 10 or 12 pound weight is, is uh, being carried at the, at, on top of your spine. So it has huge implications for everything in your body. Now, Alexander could have said, oh, the key intervention point is your little toe and your foot. And, you know, um, I'm not saying that would have been totally useless, but it does seem, would seem like a pretty ineffective place to intervene in, in the big picture of things. Do you think he had any? Uh, he intervened in that area in any way because he was uh, because he was losing his voice. Oh, I think it probably does have to do with that. I think mm-hmm. it does have to do with that. I mean, he when he set up the mirrors to examine himself, uh, I'm sure he he saw that neck tension indirectly, and he he realized, I'm sure, right away that neck tension was not going to help his vocal production any. So I think it's certainly related to that. But even if your vocal cords, vocal mechanism were not in your neck, it would still be a pretty powerful place to intervene. Mm -hmm. I think you could make an argument that there are a couple of other places that are even more uh, subtle and powerful. I think that in a way, the jaw-head relationship could be a good candidate. And I think the eye-head relationship could also be. But they don't offer quite the same advantages in terms of hands-on work, especially the eye-head one. You don't want to go sticking your hands on people's eyeballs and directing them. But I, so I think what Alex, the, the one that Alexander came up with as primary control was a really excellent choice from this point of view of of um of strategies that we're talking about so that's um that's the uh, the first thing i want to say about that but then you do have um uh so a lot of teachers will add other things so they'll say something like I'm letting my le- my neck be free so that my back can lengthen and widen. Or a teacher like Marjorie Barstow would say, I'm allowing my head to move delicately away from my torso in, in such a way that my torso comes along with it. There are all sorts of variations of this that tend to add m- more than one thing. Mm-hmm. And... I think once you're getting past one, I think two interventions is way trickier than twice one intervention. Hmm. And so if you do want to have two intentions, and you may well, 
you, I think you need some strategies for how to do that in a way that's that that actually works well given the structure of our of our brains. And one way is to is to deliver the intents sequentially. And I think Alexander sort of got that when he would give us a, a longer sentence. So I'm letting my neck be free in order that my back will lengthen and widen. So there's a separation there. So your mind goes first to your neck, then it goes to your back, whatever, arms, legs, whatever the various things you tack on. There's kind of a sequential idea there. Mm-hmm. And that's a way around it. You you really you're really staying with just one at a time, but they're kind of linked. They're close together in time. Yes, and and but you don't want to have like a checklist where free my neck, check, and then move on and forget about the free neck. So it's kind of like one at a time all together. That was a phrase of Alexander's and it captures it exactly. And, and you know, Alexander was incredibly aware of language and how it could be used and misused in terms of explaining his work and in terms of how people would, how students would think about the directions he was suggesting to them. Mm-hmm. So I think he had that idea of sequential, um, it, it kind of implicit in some of his his phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, another possible way of dealing with this seven plus or minus two is uh, what I call overlapping directions. I'm tended to use that a lot in some of the work I do with center of gravity, which I don't really want to get into in this conversation. But let's say you have an intent and you want to, you really want to have two intents, but you don't want to try doing them both exactly at the same time for any length of period. So you start with one and then you briefly overlap it with the second and then move into the second. So there's a little period of overlap, and some of the first kind of hangs in there as a result of that. Does that that make sense to to you? I'm not sure I'm explaining that exactly. Well, it does make sense to me. What would be hard to do is to do that with language, in a way. No. Well, what I tell people, um, and I I guess all the examples that I've been using, the overlap method are sort of center of gravity, but... Uh, I would say to a student, okay, so um, uh, um, just a little bit lift your center of gravity and then briefly overlap that with I'm not compressing myself and then let go gently of the first direction Mm. so that you get this little uh, period when, when the student is actually juggling two at one time, but it's a very short period. Mm. it's a shortening of the period. So a person isn't then being asked to go around for any length of time with two separate directions going at the same time, at least not until they're able to do that. I mean, some people are able to do that. But uh, in my experience, most people have a hard enough time gently continuing one direction that you, you don't want to start tacking on other ones 
at the same time. When we do tack on the other directions, let's say we're thinking to uh, allow your neck to be free so that your head can move forward and up so that your torso can mm-hmm. lengthen wide and there your legs go. can move. And all of that, is there? do you think it's a time thing where people eventually uh, embody those words or uh, yeah. they, they can do it like all at once, in other words? I think so. I don't I, – honestly, I think the answer to that question really isn't – um, there is no official answer. I, I think the work in neuroscience is is getting there. Um, in my experience, um, I would say in my experience that one of the things that happens is that the um, the ch- the number of of memory slots taken up by two or three things that are put in a sequence like that may not be the same as two or three unrelated things. Mm-hmm. So that after with some practice, that sequence that you just mentioned, which is kind of a classic Alexander uh, set of directions, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of assumes a bit of a life of its own as a, as an intervention. Right, and that can happen through time, through practice. Yes, through yes. time and practice. Yeah, but and, yeah. and developing new habits. Yeah, and I, but I think in general, the more you can decrease the number of specific details without losing track of what it is you really want to get across, the better off you are. Hmm. So yeah, you know, Mar- Marge Barstow. So like uh, here, a classic example of when I was training was um, I'm letting my uh, I'm letting my neck be free so that my back can lengthen and widen. Well, or yeah, you count the number of things there. L- letting my neck be free, back lengthen, widen. It's like three or four things. Whereas Marge would say. Um, I'm allowing my head, or I'm even moving my head delicately away from my torso. Mm-hmm. It's fewer things. Right. And, of course, it's a different approach to directing, and it's probably still controversial in some circles. But the, the, a big advantage of it was it was just fewer things. Interesting. I've been experimenting just lately, and I didn't know we were going to be talking about this, with just if somebody could come up with just one word, or I and I let my students come up with their own just free to mm-hmm. mean all of those bits of information. Yes, I think if you can, if if you can get if you can get them all collapsed into a single phrase or a single thought, mm. and but that's not likely to be you. you that's going to require some um, work on your part to get them to that point. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't just yep. have a new student come in and say, just think free. Not close. No. Not, it's not going to work. But yeah, any, I think anything you can do to, to, to have a smaller number of memory slots that get drawn into this, the more likely it is that a student is going to be able to continue directing for periods of time easily without, mm-hmm. you know, getting thrown off by a passing dog or subway train or whatever. And I think in related to that is something that we, we talked about in a previous interview, which is 
the intensity of directions, that uh, directions are most effective if they are delivered to oneself very, very softly and easily and forgiving of forgettingly, if I can (laughs) say that. Um, And I think that it could be, I mean, there's certainly, I don't know of any research on this, but it could be that a really soft self-direction takes up a little less than than one of those seven plus or minus two. Maybe, Maybe you could get three soft directions for the price of two harder directions. Mm. I, don't, I don't know, but it, it seems to me that that's the case just from experience. So again, light, the lighter the self-directing, assuming you don't lose track of what it is you are asking of yourself, the more effective it's going to be and the more likely it'll be that you can combine it with another related self-direction. It's interesting, yeah. And all of that under the umbrella of you're having a student in front of you that learns in a certain way and everybody is a little bit different. Oh, everybody is is different. And there are students who um, just one direction it may take quite a while for for some students to even be able to muster one self direction for any mm-hmm. length of time the, the and that actually leads me to the final point I wanted to make I, I tend to see uh Alexander's study as just a series of experiments hmm. i in a previous uh incarnation I was a uh metallurgical engineer and um you know, trained in science, physics, and all that stuff. And, you know, you run experiments and you see what happens. And uh, I think the kind of experiments that people uh, can most usefully make in terms of self-directing are very short in duration. Maybe as short as a few seconds, maybe 15, 20 seconds, I think a minute is way pushing it for most people. Just little times you, you you set aside in the course of your day, often just as part of whatever else you're doing. Say you're walking from your car to your front door and it's a 20-second walk. So the first 10 seconds you might devote to um, just thinking about uh, not tensing your neck. And then the next 10 seconds, you could throw that away and maybe come back to it at the end. Just so you you can, and then you could look back on that and say, oh, you know, when I was thinking of freeing my neck or not letting my, not tensing my neck, my walking was a little lighter, Hmm. you know? And then, and over time, you might get to a point where you'll say, hey, I've run, I've run these experiments enough. I don't even need to do it anymore. Just from time to time, I'm just going to say I'm not tensing my neck, and I know it's going to be useful. Interesting. So this is a combined is making me think of something that's not part of this topic. But when students ask you, as I'm sure they do, what should I do at home? What can mm-hmm. I do? What, mm-hmm. You know, exercise. Do you ever give them anything like this? I give them that at the end of the first lesson, almost mm. always. I I hardly ever let anyone leave without one or two little sets of experiments they could run. Mm. And I encourage them to run them. And many of them do. Now, I tend to use um, negative directions, which um, not everyone is uh, 
not everyone knows about them or is used to them, but of the kind that Missy Vineyard uh, wrote about in her book. Uh, Basically, no statements. I'm not tensing my neck. I'm not compressing my body. Uh, Directions that I think one could say combine direction and inhibition in one short phrase. And what I find is that once you can get a student past their suspicion of negative, you know, people mm-hmm. don't like negative. Negative sounds negative. <laughs> but, um, you know, I point out there are negative grammatical statements, but they're certainly very positive, intense. And we discussed the pink elephant problem and why it, that's not a problem here and so on. Once, once, a, once a student gets past that and runs a few experiments and notices how effective they are, then they're very inclined to experiment on their own. And what what I really love is when they come up with new ones. Right. Um, negative directions seem to, to uh, encourage that somehow. So, yeah, uh, but, but in general, you know, I think the idea of experimenting, being open to whatever happens... Um, there's really, in a way, there's no such thing as an unsuccessful experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, you may you may learn that a particular way of thinking um, is not helpful. So, you know, let's say you have a student whose whose big thing is really hanging on to directions, concentrating on them. So you say, okay, well, go ahead and concentrate on them for a few seconds and then let go of that concentration and see how lightly you can think those directions and then go back and forth a few times, maybe walking or some activity. Notice how much pressure is coming through your feet onto the ground. And pretty soon they'll see, oh, you know, when I'm being light in my thinking, I'm being light in my movement. And when I'm not concentrating concentrating mentally i'm not concentrating or compressing my body so yeah so the yeah the experiments are successful in a way no matter what because at least you're just developing more awareness you learn something and you learn something you know and you learn what works and what doesn't work and um and i try to structure them as much as possible so that they're fun yeah and so, so the the uh, experiments are by you, the teacher, and you're asking the students to do the same. Yeah, I, I'll talk them through some in a lesson. And I'll say, that's something. I'll say after I've talked them through it, I'll say, you notice that I didn't have my hands anywhere near you doing that. I was just talking to you. And anything I said, you could say to yourself. Right. And, uh, you know, students now, and to be fair, students vary dramatically in how quickly they can um, uh, get into that approach, and some t- some students come with an awful lot of pain and tension, especially if they have a lot of pain. Um, I don't necessarily, um, I'm not necessarily going to try to mobilize their thinking all that much at the beginning because they just don't have it available. They're they're in pain, you know? right? When I was in pain a few about 15 years ago, back pain. Uh, I didn't want to know about Alexander's directions. I was dealing with the pain. Exactly. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of, 
you know, what's what good is the technique? I mean, the technique was useful, but it took me a few days before I had the mental energy to mobilize any self-directing. Right, you're just looking to get out of the pain. I just, I wanted the pills, you know? Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. So those are, those are the, that's what I mean by strategies. It's kind of uh, thinking through what your current, what your situation is as far as you can judge and what would be a useful direction. And then even more importantly, perhaps, or as important, how can I best um, articulate that intention to myself? Mm-hmm. What's the most effective way I can get my whole mechanism to understand what it is I want in a useful way, which is interesting. So, yeah. so it's a, it involves detective work for what works for you and to see what works for each individual student. Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are no formulas here, but one of the, one of the analogies that I use with students that they s- seem to like is um, I say, you know, an, an intent like I'm not, tensing my neck or I'm not compressing my body, obviously involves a lot of different uh, things going on. It's not, there's going to be a lot to that. And I, I make the, I say your job as a student is to, is to deliver the big meta message to yourself mm-hmm. and to get totally out of the way of the subsystems doing their thing. What is the big meta message? The big meta message might be I'm not compressing myself. Yeah. Now, in order to, or I'm not tensing my neck or something along those lines. And obviously that, that's going to require a lot of different things to bring about. But, you know, the analogy I see, it's kind of a military analogy, and not everyone's going to like this, but imagine you're a general and you've got this huge army that's spread out over miles and miles and your job as the general is to determine when is the best time to attack (laughs) and when you're ready you either turn to some flunky next to you and say okay push the button to get it started or maybe you push the button and you as the general do not want to hear about some personnel problem in some, some platoon you know down the line that's mm-hmm. not for you to be concerned with that's a much lower level problem your your problem your issue is the big stuff and i think that's how to approach changes in our in how we function physically uh, so Alexander we want to, was, he was talking about control yeah, and again, he used that term, primary control. Well, he, he used in his books, what is it, um, man's supreme inheritance. Well, what is that? It's our ability to deliver an intent in an effective, useful way to change how we function. Right. Conscious control Conscious of the individual. Conscious of the individual. All his titles yeah. kind of echo that. Use yeah. of the self. Self is everything. It's the whole ball of wax. How do you use it, and how do you change the way you use it? And what's the what's the other one? Uh, universal constant. Mm-hmm. So a universal constant, as I remember, he says in there somewhere, your head neck relationship, 
which right. of course he regarded as crucial, is either hurting you or helping you. Right, and he talked about conscious guidance and control. Conscious guidance and control. And it's, the, it's always big picture stuff. Right, right. He was not directing his little toe. Right. And he might at some point if that turned out to be an important issue. You but could use, It could be a useful uh, thing. And also some people's little toes or jaw uh, might be more important than other people's. Yeah. So that, uh, as we were talking about before, I believe. Right, right. It doesn't preclude those kind of interventions, but it's really saying, you know, if you want to change the big picture, you got to think in big picture terms. Right, and if you go down there to the little toe, keeping the big picture in mind, even then. Yeah, and but the problem of going down to the little toe is it sucks one of those memory slots mm. mm-hmm. away from you, and... You want to be very careful. You want to be very jealous of those memory slots and mm. just use them, you know, as needed. Yeah. So that's my that's my strategies uh, take on using Alexander's discoveries. I like the strategies. I like the idea, even though this is not the topic for this podcast of, of homework. Because people ask, and a lot of teachers will say, oh, there is no specific homework. Just mm-hmm. think about this in your general use or, you know, whatever. I think this could be a, a good way to get people more engaged. Yeah, and of course, I mean, I tell people, I usually wait until the second lesson before doing some table work. But I, um, I of course, I suggest to people they spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes a day in constructive rest, initially just being there, not right. not doing anything special. But once they've gotten used to that and noticed how helpful it is, that being in the constructive rest position is an incredibly useful framework within which to explore all the things that we've been talking about. Absolutely. It's, it's, I, it's, it's beautiful because there's not a lot going on. So you can really notice things that you might not so easily in activity. Tell me if you've run across this when you suggest somebody does uh, a constructive rest position. Has anybody said to you, I don't have the room? I've had um, – I've had – I don't think I've ever had anyone say they don't have the room, but I've had people say they don't like the idea lying on the dirty floor, right. and they don't have any other place. Right. And, uh, you know, I've had to kind of come up with ideas. I had one student, and I said, well, how would how would you feel about if you could do the constructive rest on your bed? You know, I'd be fine with that. How about we get a, you buy a piece of uh plywood that's big mm-hmm. enough to provide a firm surface that could go on top of your bed when you're doing that. I've never had anyone tell me they didn't have the have you had maybe New York City, maybe that's people don't have the space. About. It's amazing. Oh, I, was, I hadn't I thought was of that. Surprised that you're even you had an idea about it because in yeah. New York City, yeah, that could be a problem, believe it or not. You get a three hundred square foot uh studio apartment. It yep, yep there's yep. not gonna be a lot of extra space. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> I've never, you know, here in Lincoln, Nebraska, we got the Great Plains, and there's I, I plenty, of room. plenty of room. Yeah, to lie there's down. plenty of room. Yeah. So, is there anything you want to add before we uh, 
before we come to an end here? No, I just want to ask you, is there anything you want to add before no, we end I, here? I've got my, that's pretty much my, my general take on looking at this whole thing from a, a strategy's point of view. Yeah. So, um, well, my guest and interviewer today has been Mark Josephsburg, who's an Alexander Technique teacher in New York City in Manhattan. I believe in Lower Manhattan, is that right? Uh, lower Mid-Manhattan. Lower yeah. and Midtown. And if um, anything we've talked about intrigues you and you live in the New York area, we'll put a link to his site. And we'll also put a link to a site that has more information about the Alexander Technique and will enable you to find a teacher uh, anywhere in the world. Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks a lot, Robert. It was fun.